family have been called, the church is praying, and the couple sit together, and both of them wonder, what do we do now? A young man sits alone in a large room. The oversized chair he's seated in is plush, and he sinks into the seat, and it makes him feel small. And he hears a clock ticking off in the distance, and he's thinking about his future, and in his hand is a small little box, and inside a ring. And he's wondering, should I or should I not? What should I do? An older woman is seated face to face with her doctor, and he's just delivered terrible news that she has an incurable disease. And her face begins to tighten, and the tears form in her eyes, and she knows that the end of her life is near. What is she going to do? Now, these are all fictional stories. I, I made them up yesterday, but they're not really fictional. I don't mean that they're true stories and that I can put a name to each one of them, but they're true in the sense that these are the kinds of things that happen to everyone. We all face problems in life. We all face choices in life. Sometimes the choices are actually even good ones, like the young man just trying to figure out whether he should ask his girlfriend to marry him. That's a good thing. If you get that far in a relationship, praise God, right? That's a, that's a good thing. But it does beg the question, what do we do when we ask, what should we do? Where do we begin to find the answers to life's important questions? Purchase a home or rent for another year? Change schools for my children? Continue with my job or search for a new one? Should I get a new friend group? How do I parent grown-up children? How do I parent brand-new children? How do I deal with my noisy neighbors? What about my car? What about my horse? <laughs> you have a horse? <laughs> the answer to what should I do now is never the same from situation to situation or person to person. That is, when you face a what should I do now question, it is so unique to you that it's really impossible for others to say, this is what you should do. I mean, it's easy to say that, but it doesn't mean they really fully understand the scenario so unique to you. And while you can seek the wisdom of others, and while God has given you a certain amount of common sense, it's not really possible for you to answer all of these questions. If you think you haven't yet faced truly in your life of what should I do now question, wait, it's coming. It is coming. And there'll be a time in your life where you'll face one of these and you'll say, I don't know what to do. Now, the, to answer the question, what should I do, requires three important things. Knowledge, judgment, and discipline. These things combine to form what we call wisdom. Wisdom is, here's my definition for you, taking the right action at the right time. You take the right action at the right time, that's wisdom. Wisdom has the facts, 
can sift through them to arrange them into a priority and then arrives at a conclusion that requires action, whether it's active or passive. And what I mean by passive is sometimes wisdom says, wait, just wait. I've just, I've just gone through all the facts as I know them. I have all of the facts. I've been able to put them into some sort of priority. And now as I look at the situation from that angle, the answer is just don't do anything. Or sometimes it is do something right now, immediately. And whether it is, like in the first situation, a couple trying to find a runaway child, that requires some immediate action. I, I can't imagine a wife looking at her husband and saying, well, you know, it was about time he left. Uh, let's just wait a couple weeks, see if he turns back up. I mean, nobody would say that. That wouldn't be wise. And at the same time, uh, uh, maybe for the young man with the ring in his hand, uh, he needs to move, baby. Uh, get on with this. You're in your mid-40s. Uh, uh, you need to make a decision. Um, I, I, I've heard stories of couples getting together on the night of their engagement. I've heard stories of, uh, where the one is ready you know, to just ditch the other one, uh, not knowing that the engagement is coming. You know, I mean, things like this happen. Time to get a move on, right? I mean, these are fictional stories, but they're ring true to us. So wisdom has the facts, it sifts through them, arranges them into priority, and then arrives at a conclusion requiring action. When we need answers, then, where do we turn? And this is what the Bible calls the pursuit of wisdom. Number one, the pursuit of wisdom begins with a humble heart. Humility recognizes God's goodness. Look at verse 6. Solomon said to God, you have showed to me, your servant, or, or rather to David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked in truth before you, and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart, and you kept him for, for this great kindness, that he now has a son sitting on the throne, as it is today. Solomon verbalizes God's loving kindness to David, his father. In fact, the sentence begins, and said Solomon. His response to the Lord, by the way, in a dream no less. And I find it fascinating that what Solomon says to God in his dream, please the Lord. And it makes me think, I've never said to the Lord, Lord, let me please you in my dreams. But maybe I should, right? Because Solomon answers God in a pleasing way in the dream. And his response to God in his dream is to repeat back to the Lord God's own love for David. He is recognizing God's goodness. This is what is in Solomon's heart. He must have meditated for hours on God's steadfast love prior to this moment. This isn't something that just pops into his mind out of thin air. In fact, the word here that Solomon says... You showed my father great mercy. That word mercy means favor or kindness. It has the idea of that steadfast love. So he's praising God for God's faithfulness. He remarks that God preserved David's throne. 
This is not necessarily uh, something David deserved. Although he says about his father that he walked in truth and, and righteousness and uprightness of heart, we know David wasn't perfect. We, we know that Solomon here is ignoring some of the seedier aspects of David's life, right? We know that. We've read the Bible stories. He's ignoring even maybe the most obvious because who is Solomon's mother? It's Bathsheba, the woman with whom David sinned. And there were other sins of pride and self-assurance and, and even lying and, and uh, violence in David's background and life. But here Solomon sits on the throne. And so Solomon looks at God and he looks at his father David and he says, you showed my father love because you have preserved the line of David. Remember, this is something that Saul lacked. The first king of Israel is not David, it's Saul. But Saul is dead. And Jonathan, the son who would sit on the throne, is also dead. And most, almost entirely all, not all, but almost entirely all of Saul's line had now been cut off. Who's left? Mephibosheth? The cripple? There's very little left here. And, and now you have Solomon recognizing that his own kingship is due to God's divine intervention. So now he's hearkening back to that Davidic covenant that God had promised to David that David would have a son to sit on the throne. And we know there's a sense in that covenant that goes way past Solomon all the way to Jesus. But there is an immediate realization that Solomon himself is seated there on the throne of Israel because God was faithful to his promises. And this is what Solomon is verbalizing. And this is where humility begins. It says, God is so good. Then, letter B, it acknowledges one's own deficiencies. Look at verse 7. And now, God, my Lord God, you have made your servant king instead of David. I am a little child. I don't know how to go out and come in. Solomon is nothing like his father David. Um, they, they tell us that a bird has to fight to get out of its shell in order to build up the requisite strength to live. David had to fight for his throne. It was kind of handed to Solomon. Solomon is a soft man in that sense. David is a military man. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, yes. But remember, Saul had slain his thousands. David, his ten thousands. David was a violent man. He was a bloody man. And Solomon did not earn the throne like David, his father, did. And so he acknowledges here, I am just a child. I'm not even at the place where I'm ready to begin this process he says, I don't know how to go out and come in. And this is a euphemism. It, it could mean a number of things. It just may mean generally I'm inexperienced or it even might mean uh, I don't have the necessary military background. In the Old Testament, it talks about the kings going out and coming in in the sense of the armies going out and coming in. He's just saying, I don't have the leadership skills to do the job. I'm new to this. 
So the humility here is not just seeing that God is so good, but it's also seeing I'm not really able to do this. It's seeing self as we are. And then letter C, it acknowledges the enormity of the challenge ahead. He says, your servant is in the midst of the people which you chose, and they are a great people who cannot be numbered or counted. The contrast between Solomon seeing himself as a child is this huge population of Israel. He says they're a great people. And he speaks of himself again a little euphemistically. He says we can't even number how many there are. There's so many people I'm leading. And, and you almost get a sense here that Solomon is speaking to God a, a lot like a former leader of Israel spoke to God many centuries before. Can you think of who that might be? Do you remember Moses saying to God, I can't do this job. There's just no way I can do this job. I don't have the abilities to do this job. It's such a huge task. And so Solomon, while he is saying to God, I'm a little child, I don't know how to go out and come in. He's saying, and oh, by the way, God, the job is really, really big. This is an enormous task. My position is difficult. I lack experience. My challenge requires great experience. And that's the problem. Finally, this humility acknowledges one's responsibility before God. Do you see in verses 6, 7, and 8 a word that keeps repeating itself? He calls his father, David, God's servant. And then he says of himself in verse 7 and verse 8 that he is God's servant. I find this interesting because now Solomon, even as he is seeing that the task is huge and his experience is limited, he's seeing that God is good and he's seeing all of these things. He puts himself into the proper position of being God's servant. He, it sees one's duty in serving God. Whatever the task we have, Ahead of us, ladies and gentlemen, listen, even boys and girls, listen to me. Whatever the task you have ahead of you this year, put yourself in the place of God's servant. See yourself as doing it unto the Lord, not unto men. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of God doing his will from the heart. See it as a service. So whether you work in IT or you teach first or second, third, fourth, fifth grade or high school or you're a sub uh, or whether you are, are a, a businessman or whether you're an attorney or a doctor, whatever your position, whether you're retired or not, it doesn't matter wherever God has placed you. See yourself as his servant. I serve under you because even exalted places like a kingship are serving places. You have an opportunity before you to serve God. Humility is not connected to position. It's not that the lower position people have to be humble and the higher position people don't have to be humble. Right? It's not that, well, I work for a really important 
Fortune 500 company and I'm in mid-level management, I don't work at Walmart or Walgreens or Target. I'm not a waitress at a local restaurant. Well, those are menial tasks. I'm not the guy who stands out with the slow, fast sign on the highway, right? Those are, those are the low positions. Humility is not just for them. They should be humble, yes. Not because of the job they do, because this is their calling before God. And every one of us should say, we should be humble. Pastors should be humble before God. It's a place of service. And sometimes I remind myself when I'm picking up trash or, or when I'm cleaning something around the church, it's a position of service. You don't say, well, I'm the pastor. You know, somebody else ought to do this. It's really a position where we say we serve people. And we're all in that position. Humility, friends, is a choice we make because we see ourselves before God as we are. So my question for you is this. As we begin our pursuit of wisdom, are you humble enough to know that you need it? You, you see, if you see that God is good and that my task is great and I don't have the requisite experience to, to really know the answers here and I'm in a position of serving this good God... If this is all true, then if I have that humility, do I know that I need God's wisdom? Too many people just start off into the situation they're in. They run headlong into that situation thinking they have the answers already. But truly, without God's wisdom, you will fail because you will never realize that wisdom is your greatest need. You're just too proud to see it. You'll never be wise until you're humble. You may have all the common sense in the world, but it isn't God's wisdom. It's just man's. Now, just as the pursuit of wisdom begins with a humble heart, it seeks wisdom from its divine source. That's number two. The pursuit of wisdom seeks wisdom from its divine source because only God gives true wisdom. Look at verse five. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask what I will give you. And then in verse nine, I'm going to supply the subject. You give, therefore, and then the, 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 the speaker to me. Solomon saying, you give this to me. It's God that gives wisdom. It's important to recognize the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Man's wisdom is wisdom in a sense. It can begin with some kind of knowledge. People are smart. A lot of people are really smart. And it can include some discernment, especially if they have experience. If they have the long beard, you know, they're wizened and they kind of stroke that beard. That, that, there's that experience there. And it may, they may even be disciplined enough to act in the right moment and manner but man's wisdom lacks God's knowledge. You see, here's the problem with man's wisdom. It's limited knowledge. Some of the brightest, most educated people in the world actually believe that you came from a monkey. I'm not making this up. 
And I'm going to tell you, it feels a little bit like the emperor's new clothes. If you know that story by Hans Christian Andersen, when I'm talking to a person and I go, oh, right. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the earth sits on the back of a giant turtle. Did you know? It really is strange that some of the brightest people in the world are really ignorant because they are missing certain key facts. And it doesn't matter how educated or bright you are, until you see God's wisdom as the source of wisdom, you're missing something. God, you lack God's knowledge. You lack Holy Spirit-enabled discernment. You can sit there and say, okay, all right. Uh, I was listening to Dave Ramsey, and he said, put all your money in little envelopes, and I did that. You, you got all that? My money's in all the little envelopes, and, and it's just Crown University, by the way. He's just repackaging old material. But you, you got all that stuff, and, and, you, it, and that's good. That's good. But then you come to a crisis, and you don't know what to do, a financial crisis, and you go, well, i got to call Dave. I've got to figure this out. Get on, that, get on that phone and try to get on his program. Ask him a question. You don't have the discernment. Do you know where you can get discernment? From the Holy Spirit. He can give you discernment. Because sometimes the right answer isn't putting money in an envelope. Sometimes the right answer is actually giving that envelope to somebody else. Saying, here, this is now yours. God's leading me to give you this money. You, you can't live by man's wisdom because it lacks Holy Spirit-enabled discernment. And finally, it lacks spiritual discipline in order to accomplish it. Man, man's wisdom works for man in a sense that it follows certain principles and rules that got established in his creative order. But because it lacks God's influence and input, there isn't the discipline to pull it off. This is why people keep doing the same stupid things over and over again. And that's a Bible word, stupid. Okay, That is a Bible word. I'm not making that up. That is a Bible word. It's not like some preachers say it's a Bible word. It's not a Bible word like baloney. Some people say that's Greek for baloney or something. That's not a Bible word. There's no baloney in the Bible. Okay, There's no Oscar Mayer in the Bible. Okay, it's not. But this is actually a Bible word. It is stupid. And what I mean by that is this. They, they get up one morning and they say, um, you know, last year I, uh, I got drunk over and over again. And every time I got drunk, I got beat up. And uh, I, I, it was horrible. And so I should probably do something about that. And then he goes, you know, I need to think about this. And so he goes down to the bar and he uh, orders a couple of drinks while he's thinking about how he should stop drinking and keep getting beat up. I actually sat and talked to a young lady once who said, I have been drunk five times in my life. And three of those times I got assaulted. And I looked at her and I said this to her. This was my counsel. I said, uh, you should stop drinking. And she said, oh, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. Well, the Bible may not teach that, okay? We can argue that till the cows come home, but that's good advice for you. Because clearly you're having a problem here, right? It takes spiritual discipline to say, 
This is what God's will teaches. Do you know there are certain things that aren't that don't really fall into the sin, not sin categories? It's called wisdom and folly. And folly isn't always a sin, and wisdom doesn't mean you're always necessarily ethically righteous or even morally righteous. Doing the right thing has been done by a lot of unsaved people. And so when you realize that, that it's not always sin, you say, well, it does, it's not a sin, I can do it. No, but it's stupid. And in God's word, he encourages you not to do those kinds of things, but he doesn't demand it. Well, are you a legalist now? Is there have to be a law for everything a Christian should or can or can't do? Have we all become legalists demanding a law that says, I can't do this? No, God's Holy Spirit is saying, don't do it. So don't do it. And this is where we find ourselves. So Solomon here, he knows I need God for wisdom. So he goes to God and says, verse 9, the subject supplied from verse 8, you give this to me. I need this wisdom. And he only, friends, gives this wisdom to those who meet these prerequisites. This is letter B. He gives wisdom to those who love him. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Verse 3 indicates Solomon's predisposition toward God, that he loved him and that he desired to obey him. Why in the world would God teach you anything if your response to him was, I'm not going to do it? God says, don't, and you say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Why would you expect to God give you any wisdom if you're just going to disobey him? If you don't love him, if you have no affection for him. I think this is important because God just doesn't give wisdom to anybody. He just he doesn't give wisdom only to important people. He doesn't just give wisdom to mature people. He doesn't just give wisdom to even consistently godly people. He gives wisdom to people who love him and want to obey him. And he gives wisdom to those who ask for it. Verse 9, give to me an understanding heart. Solomon requests this wisdom from God. The understanding heart is one that is teachable, that hears and obeys. Friends, I cannot stress enough that one of the number, one of the number one, that would make no sense. One of the biggest problems within Christianity today, as a pastor, I can look back and say that. When I was in my 20s, I couldn't say that. But now that I'm 53, I have that age and experience, that wisdom, if you will. Do, do you know the quality that's lacking in so many people is teachability? If you can't learn from God, you're stuck. You're just stopped in the road. And, and really, it's because you don't have a heart that says, Lord, I want to hear from you and I want to obey you. And that's what's required for wisdom. It means he's able now to discern the good from the bad. Sometimes what's right is difficult to see. And the wrong may even seem to be right. 
Our culture is really good at this. It tricks us because it often presents what is good as being something bad. You can see it in the way that Hollywood presents the issues. You, you, you realize TV is really like, a, it's, well, it's the modern version of the novel is really what it is. A movie, a television program is a modern version of, an, of the old novel. And just like the old novelists were trying to teach something, right? I mean, there's a lesson, even if you don't want to learn it, in the Scarlet Letter, okay? There's a lesson there somewhere. I never did find it, but there's a lesson there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lesson in Uncle Tom's Cabin. There's a lesson to be learned. There's lessons in these books. These novelists have a purpose for writing them. They want to teach. And you, you can watch a television program, and, and they can present an issue, and you completely disagree, but something inside of you goes, but that seems right, how they're coming at this. I, I must be wrong. They're so good at tricking us to make the evil seem good and make the good seem evil. Friends, that's Satan's work. And what we have to have is the wisdom from God to understand that what he does is right. And I need to be able to discern here, verse 9, between good and bad. And those words mean what is right and what is evil. It's the Hebrew word ra. It's evil. And the applications he makes then in, in verse 9 is to have a heart to, to be able to judge your people. He says, I need this to be able to discern between the good and the bad so that I can be a judge over what's going on. And friends, if, if you say, I want God's wisdom and, I'm, and I want the humility necessary to receive God's wisdom, if you're not trusting your own instincts, if you're not trusting in your education or experience, if you're not even trusting in what other people say, seems to work for them, then I ask you, are you, with that humility, coming to God and saying, God, I, I need you. I need your wisdom. I need to know how to parent my children. I, I need to know how to, how to handle this problem at work with my boss, with my employees. I need to understand, Lord, how even in my marriage situation to handle this rightly. I need your wisdom. You're coming to God for help. You see, because that leads us to our third point, that is the pursuit of wisdom trusts that God keeps his promises. And now we get to a fun story, don't we? It's really the more interesting part of the whole passage, I, I, at least for me, because you have here something interesting about God, that God's wisdom guides his servants through seemingly impossible situations. Here appear these two women who are both about, who both have just given birth. And the, the first mother says to the king, this woman and I live in a house. Here's the complaint, and it almost reads like a detective novel. I mean, this story is really interesting. Both women had a son within days of each other. They both lived in the same home. No one else has been to the home. No one else is in the home. No one else has been to the home. Now, in the, in the meantime, one of the sons has died, 
And the first mom says the second mom smothered her child by accident. And then in the middle of the night, she came realizing that her son was dead and switched babies on me. And when I got up in the morning, my first thought was, oh no, I've killed my child. And then as I began to look at my child, I realized this is not my child. And then I said to the woman, you gave, you, you gave me your child. And the, the lady goes, no, that's not my child. This is my child. And now they're having this argument. And, they, and the argument apparently works all the way up to Solomon. Through whatever court system they have, it gets to Solomon. The woman wants her alive son back. It's a classic. She said, she said, right? Classic. This is a really neat story. I mean, it's like a detective story. It really is. This, this would make a really neat novel. So Solomon, after this section where you have this dream and God promises Solomon to give him a wise and understanding heart so he'll be able to discern between the good and the bad. So he, he'll have this wisdom. We now have that the writer of this book of 1 Kings, includes this story immediately upon that dream. They probably didn't happen simultaneously. It's not like Solomon woke up from his dream and the next morning these two women walked in. It's not like that. He's, he's putting the stories together because he wants you to see a connection between what we've just learned about God and Solomon and how Solomon is now living this out in his life. And so here's what we have. Solomon recognizes this is a problem. In fact, it, it, it says here... That he goes, um, she says one thing, and she's saying another, and I have no way of proving which is which. Who's right, who's wrong. In fact, in verse 23, you almost could read this as Solomon said, I am in a quandary. I am, I cannot figure this out. I need help. But now... God's wisdom comes into play because in the middle of all of this, the king responds in a way that nobody would expect unless you've read this story. It's so outlandish that if you've never heard this story before right now, you've probably already read it in your Bible two or three times because you're going, that is a weird story. I'm guessing all of you have heard it before, but it's still pretty weird. Uh, John Piper's son, Abraham, is in an apostate. It's a really sad situation. I saw him on Instagram this week. He had a little thing he put out where he was talking about all the strange stories in the Bible. Uh, he's basically, he's, he's picking the low-hanging fruit of people who are not really believers, but they kind of grew up in church, and they don't really know their Bible at all. And he's picking that low-hanging fruit for the devil. He's the devil's fruit picker uh, right now. It'd be wonderful he got saved, but he's really turned away from God. And he says, yeah, there's a story in the Bible where a king threatens to cut a baby in half. And I'm going, yeah, but he didn't. You know, you didn't tell him the whole story, Abraham. Come on, be fair. This is actually a really neat story because the king says, bring me a sword. And now everybody in that courtroom, they've not read this story. Remember, they don't have the Old Testament. <laughs> And they and they're looking and, they, and you know I'm, I'm imagining this big huge gigantic sword. It might have been small, but I'm imagining this big giant sword. You know, the kind they lop off heads with. That kind, you know, the big. Yeah. So he's got this sword and he's looking at the babies and he says uh, he says uh, to his men, "Hey, 
why don't we do this? Just cut the baby in half. And let me ask you a question. How many of you parents haven't done this same thing? Not cutting your babies in half, I'm not saying that. I, I understand none of you have done that, right? I mean, for the most part, I don't think anybody's done that. What I'm talking about is you walk into the playroom and your kids are fighting and, and, they, and there's toys and you go, okay, you get this and you get this and we're all at peace, right? That's how we, how, how many times have we not tried to solve problems that way? By the way, that never works. It's a temporary victory. <laughs> Because both of them are still being selfish and will still come, they'll drop, they don't want, they didn't want the toy, they wanted a fight, right? That's, that's why they're arguing. So here you have the two, cut the baby in half. This is kind of like a parent's solution to the child's problem. But what's really happening here is Solomon is acting in accordance to God's wisdom because while he offers to divide the living child, which sounds barbaric to our ears, Solomon is actually laying a trap. He, it's, it's like you have a problem with mice in your home and you he just put the little cheese on the end of the mouse trap, and he's already snapped his finger three times, so he knows it works. And he's, he's locked that thing in and it is on a hair trigger and he sets it right where that mouse has been and he just waits. And, you know, that mouse is, when I can come out, nibble on that cheese, and then what? And he's going to get that mouse. And Solomon has laid this perfect trap for this woman who is lying. Now, it's interesting because the women, they respond to him completely differently. They respond as they are themselves. That is, the woman who is the true mother loves the child. And doesn't want to see her son die. And, I, and I'm sitting here thinking at the same time, but she's willing to give her child to that awful woman. So maybe she's got another plan in the back of her mind. But she says, don't kill the child. Just give the child to the evil woman. So she's going to give her child up. And the evil woman says, no, let's cut the baby in half. Now that's barbaric. But that's the trap. Because immediately something takes place in Solomon's mind. He sees who is right. And he looks at the woman who loves the child and says, that's your baby. That's your baby. I just got, I was able through this little scenario, this stunt I pulled, that's going to throw apostates apparently for centuries over a cliff, i.e. Abraham Piper, right? And this is a stunt. But it's all a trap because now it's pulled to the surface in the she said, she said, who's really telling the truth. Oh, you're the mother who's right. And you're the mother who's wrong. So he says, give the baby to the mother who loves the child. And he announces, she is the child. And do you see what Israel does? Israel all goes, oh, wow. Solomon is wise. Now it's God's wisdom. And it is unfortunate that the conditional agreement that God makes at the end of this story doesn't take place because Solomon doesn't walk in the ways of David, his father, as he should. Later on, his, his heart is going to be turned against God and he's going to become an idolater of all things. And he doesn't get the length of days that he could have had. 
In fact, I think in the New Testament, you have some, some hint that Solomon was trying to figure out a way to extend his life and couldn't. You get this idea here. Solomon had a promise of it and he did not receive it because he would not walk in the ways of God, but he had the wisdom to do it. It's just by the end of his life, he lost the discipline to do what he knew was true. But it was God's wisdom. And my friends, it's a demonstration. A story here, even known outside of the Bible as evidence of the wisdom that God gave him. And, and it proves something to us that God is trustworthy. That when you have the requisite humility to say, I need your wisdom, God, I cannot solve this problem. I, I, am, I am alone in this. I am lost. I, I feel like I have no way to turn. If I step to the right, I go over a cliff. If I step to the left, I fall to my death. I, have, I can't go forward. I can't go back. I don't know where to go. Lord, you have the answer. Please reveal it to me. When you have that requisite humility and then you come to God and you seek him and him alone for the answer. Okay, God, I need your help. You have to show me. If, I, if you don't show me, I don't know. You, I, 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 can't, I don't want to take you into the inner workings of my entire life. You don't want to see it behind the curtain. <laughs> You know how the sausage is always made. But I'm going to tell you a prayer that I pray constantly is, Lord, I don't know where to turn. You have to show me. I pray it in my marriage. Uh, I pray it with my children. I pray it with myself half the time. You know, it's, my, it's like a spiritual GPS. Okay, Lord, where do I turn now? I pray it constantly. Lord, I don't know what to do here. Give me the wisdom. I prayed that prayer this morning. Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. And my friends, if you do that, then the only thing left is to trust him. That he'll give it to you. What kind of God do you say you believe him? That when you come to him for prayer and say, God, give me bread, he gives you instead a stone. Or when you say, give me a fish, he gives you a snake. Is that the God you serve? So when you say, God, give me wisdom, do you think he gives you false wisdom? Do you question in your mind, should I really do this or should I not? No, you say, this is the wisdom he gave me. As far as I can tell, I prayed and sought his face for wisdom. And now I'm going forward into the dark, as it were, knowing that he's right with me and that he's promised that the outcome is to his glory. And so the couple sits on the floor of their home, not knowing where their son is that night. And they are heartbroken because their son made a stupid decision to run away. Or their daughter. The story is, I don't pick a gender. You just fill in the blank however you want. And what do they do? They pray, Lord, we need your wisdom. I have to have your wisdom. I don't, I don't know where to go. And then God answers. I've told you this story before. It's, it's one of the most interesting stories from our mission trips that I've ever been a part of. Years ago in New York City, uh, Brian McBrayer and I were uh, witnessing in Tompkins Square Park, and we walked into a fenced-in area. It was fenced-in, and there was a group of people there who, who were um, not people that we're familiar with in our normal 
day-to-day life. Okay, I'll just say it that way. They were uh, wild. Uh, they, they looked like they were uh, angry. They had uh, vicious-looking dogs with them. I told Brian, you'd kind of just stay behind me, and if I say run, you run, okay? That's how we're going to do this, all right? We're going to try to go witness to them, but, but if, I run, if I say run, you don't stand, you run, okay? So he's like, okay, Pastor, so we walk in there. And I start witnessing to them, and one of them knows a little bit about Christianity, so he's trying to mock me, and um, I'm answering him back, and we're having a conversation. It was not civil at all. And then one of the men got up, and I told Brian, I think it's time we go. We've told them about Jesus. It's, you know, you know they've, had, they've heard. We can go. And so we began to walk out. We walked back through the gate of the fence. And this one gentleman, and he had, he had shaved all of the hair off of his head. And he had tattooed his entire face, beginning at his eyebrows, all the way across his head and down, I guess, down his back. I couldn't see past his shirt. But it, it started at his eyebrows. And it, I know tattooing has become a thing more in the last 15 years or so, but this is back when tattooing wasn't as big of a deal, and it really looked unusual. I wasn't as used to seeing the tattoos as I saw on this guy, and he was kind of scary looking, and he started following us. And I said, Brian, we're just going to walk right back into the church, and we walked into the church building, and we walked all the way to the back of the church building. All of the church members who were there just passing out cheesecake had no idea we had just brought this violent man into the building. (laughs) They're just passing out cheesecake. Here, we want some cheesecake, you know. Cheesecake, cheesecake. Guys like sure he's eating cheesecake. And right behind him comes this couple, this middle-aged couple, and they're frantic. And they walk in, and they, they have flyers in their hands, and they are looking for their daughter who had run away. And they are passing out flyers, and they just wander by the opening to Bill Jones's old place down in Tompkins Square Park, and and... They saw people out on the street, and so they thought, well, we'll just go and see if they know anybody that may have seen her. They knew that she was kind of in that section of New York. I mean, try to find a child in New York, right? I mean, millions of people. So, um, But they knew it was that Lower East Side, and so they walk in, and they're passing on flyers, and one of them turns to this guy and passes him a flyer. He looks at him and goes, I know right where she is. I can take you to her. And then the three of them left. And I'm sitting there going, it is really weird and amazing how God works. Here, Brian and I walked into this compound a little nervous because these people looked scary. And then one of them, just for whatever reason, decided to follow us back into the church building at the very time that this couple walks in looking for their daughter. All of this happens. And friends, that's what God does. And and you could not arrange it better than that if you tried. And I'm saying all of that just to remind you that when you come to God in humility and you seek his face for wisdom, all you can do then is trust. Okay, Lord? It's in your hands. He promises to bless. He promises with wisdom. I will trust you now with wisdom that I need and I will act on what you give me. And that's the pursuit of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help.